um, in our fourth week of Lent, drawing toward Easter. Um, we've been talking about Lent being kind of a wilderness um, time when we commemorate some of the times that Israel spent in the wilderness, which is actually where our story tonight comes from. Also, when Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And, and uh, so this is a time when the church is classically kind of dug in and, uh, and faced um, some of the tougher concepts um, that, we, that we, things like doubt and fear and pain. Um, we take Lent to kind of uh, face those things. And so um, Lent also, I mean, if you've been here for the majority of Lent, you've, you've kind of heard me um, call us to the mat on a few things, um, on who we love, loving our enemies, talked about that the first week uh, when we discussed the Noahic covenant and how God uh, made a covenant with all living creatures, and w- which means we serve a God who is in covenant relationship with every living thing. And we have a responsibility along with God to love um, everyone, even our enemies. And then we talked about functional saviors, um, how we have a tendency to... Uh, to turn toward things other than God to save us. When we look at how broken the world is and how bad things are, um, you know, we have a, it's really easy to say, if ever we're going to fix things, we have to elect this person or we have to do that thing or I have to save up this much money or I have to, you know, we, these things that we think will save us. They're called functional saviors and, and how, uh, uh, how that's not Jesus' way. Jesus is our one and only Savior and ultimately he's the only one that can fix things and as we looked at his fix in Abraham's life, that he sent a baby. And that was his fix to all the problems in the world. He said, we're going to bless the entire world. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. And I'm going to do it by sending you a son. And, and from that came the Jewish people. The Jewish people were born. And, uh, and from them, obviously, came the Messiah. So God did this gigantic work of redemption and he started with one little act. And that's the way our God works. And we have a tendency to feel like the problems of the world are so big that in order to fix them, we're going to need big things. We're going to need you know, laws and, and these huge things. And, and God says, no, the way it happens is with love, by loving your neighbor, by doing good, by um, you know, being faithful, by being faithful in your business. And all these little things, when the church will do these things, it, it spreads and it grows and it does make the world better and that's the way God does it. And then last week we got into the Mosaic Covenant. We got into, um, we talked, we kind of tracked from the Exodus on through to Mount Sinai and how the people were constantly uh, blaming Moses. We kind of saw that um, it seemed that they thought it was Moses who had delivered them and that they, every time something went wrong, they turned to Moses and they were like, why have you done this? Why did you do this? And and, uh, and so God and Moses have a conversation and he goes, tomorrow bring the people so that they can hear me talk to you. It wasn't that God even intended to come and talk to the people. He was just kind of letting the people know that Moses is speaking for him. And Moses kind of records the first words of God um, in written form. And it's kind of the birth of what we would know as the scripture, that the scriptures were born that day. And from then on, God has inspired people to record. And, and, and up until then, we assume it was oral traditions and things like that. But... There on Sinai, God kind of validated Moses. He showed up and the people's response was, you talk to God and then come and talk to us, but don't let God talk straight to us. The, the, the bigness of it scared them. Um, and so we, uh, we see kind of the birth of, of the scripture being God's primary voice to us. And then uh, 
<clears throat> and to be honest, um, I just have to start kind of with a confession. It's been kind of a raw week, just praying for Dale and and uh, worrying about him. And and uh, and you know, if you haven't heard, he's got a severe bleeding ulcer and uh, was very close to actually bleeding out. He was at a point where when he was laying down, he would come conscious, and as soon as he would sit up and and the blood would leave his head, he would pass out again, like he was that low on blood. Um, his hemoglobin count was half what it should have been when he came in. And, uh, and when they went down with the scope, the doctor told him, we cannot let you leave here until we get this taken care of because if that thing were to open up, you could, it would only take you about an hour to bleed out and you'd be dead. So all on the inside where you can't see it. And so it's been an emotional week and it's kind of been a raw week and um, been a raw few weeks really. And so... Um, I want to start by saying that in the season of Lent, I know I stand up here and, and I tell you, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to. And I hope you know that Lent makes me a hypocrite, like that this stuff is no easier for me than it is you. Like this is like all week long as I'm studying this stuff, it's beating me up. So please don't ever think that as I stand up here and, and tell you, you got to get rid of your functional savers. You got to, you know, uh, love your enemies that I'm saying that from someone who has mastered that skill because I have not. I absolutely have not. Like I'm preaching to me, too. I wish there was a way I could stand up here and sit back there because I, I hope I never send that message like that. I have all this stuff completely figured out. But anyway, so <clears throat> we uh, in this passage tonight and I got to tell you. I know most of you have heard me say that during the high seasons, um, Lent and Advent, uh, we go through the lectionary, which means that the Book of Common Prayer picks our scripture each week. Um, and we're, so we're kind of preaching the same thing that a lot of the church is preaching when we're in the high holidays. And, uh, and tonight is one of the reasons I like the lectionary, because given my choice, never, ever, 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 ever would I preach on this passage. If the lectionary didn't make me do it, I wouldn't do it. Because this one is a, this one is a pain. This is one of those ones you just skip and go, yeah, I don't get that one. That was a weird one. I'm certainly not going to try and teach on that. Um, and so this has, been a, this has been a challenging week. And what's more is if there's not a lot written on this passage. I think it stumped a lot of people because I've got some pretty deep resources and uh, and so normally when I get into, especially some of the Jewish commentaries, normally when I get into those, there's way more than I could ever study and read on a passage. And there's been a lot of times I've come in here and I've said, you know, I started studying this week and I got into deep waters. Well, I can tell you, I spent all week in this passage and they are shallow waters. There's not a whole lot here um, in terms of commentary and things that people have written on this passage because I think because it's so weird. Um, and uh, so we're going to we're going to start. I thought what would be good is we're just going to talk about some of the some of the odd little statements in this passage, pull them out, see what we can get from them. And then at the end, maybe we'll we'll see if we can see what this means to us in a grander sense. But this is where it starts is and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we load this worthless food. So the first thing is we see. The people are now, and we read like, what, five passages last week where every time something would go wrong, the people turn straight to Moses. Why have you done this thing? Why have you done it? Why have you let us out of Egypt? Why didn't you let us die, or die back there? And so now we see that they're yelling at God and Moses. So we've made progress. Um, last week we talked about how God, when he showed up, he kind of validated 
um, his relationship with Moses so that people would realize that this wasn't just Moses' doing. He wasn't just a, like a magician, like the magicians in Egypt who could do these crazy tricks. He's, he's actually speaking for God. And, and so we see in the beginning of our passage here that now when things start going wrong, at least they're speaking against God and Moses, not just Moses. So we do see some progress. And the second half of this verse is, is when it gets really fun. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You guys see the contradiction there? There is no food, and we hate this food. Like, and, and so when I first read this, I laughed about it, you know, because it's, that's kind of the nature of, of complaining. You know, you're, I don't have anything, and I hate the stuff I have. Like, but... <laughs> And it is funny, but at the same time, um, this is the nature of pain. If you think about the times you've really been hurting, pain is not something that is logical. Pain is not something where we ever deal with, with reality as it really is. This is what pain feels like when, when you're... And if you've ever known somebody that's really, really hurting, and they say crazy things, and you try to... Um, you try to deal with their pain with logic, it never works. You know, someone's like, they're like, you always say blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, no, hold on. No, I don't always do that because sometimes I blah, blah, blah. That, You get nowhere because pain isn't, pain doesn't work in, in like the way things really are. Pain is, is a way of saying, and unfortunately we don't have a way of communicating, or we do have a way, but we don't generally communicate in terms of what we feel. We translate it into this is what is. You know what I mean? So we, so we say, like, we have no food and no water, because that's what they're feeling. Even though nobody has gone hungry, the man has been there every morning, the quail's there in the evening. Um, so this is not an issue of starvation, but that's probably what it feels like to them. That's probably the pain they're in, is that it feels like no food. So even though this is it's kind of funny because it's such an obvious contradiction, I think most of us have been there when we're, when we're in a lot of pain and when we're really, really hurting. We don't always say things the way they really are. We don't always say what's logical and what's real. And we don't always keep a great score of how things are. And, and that's okay because you don't, you don't see God or Moses like in this passage go, um, what are you talking about? There's manna every single morning. Like, you know, nobody corrects their mistake here. God just lets them have their moment. He lets them have kind of their authentic pain. This is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like I have no food. And even though there's clearly food there. Um, so anyway, um, and believe it or not, this is actually the easy verse because it gets way messier from here. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. Um, this is a hermeneutical nightmare. Everybody know what hermeneutics are? It's, the, it's the, what we kind of call the art and science of scripture interpretation or it's not really even scripture it's any ancient text that we're trying to figure out what it meant there's some kind of hermeneutical rules um, that we follow to kind of keep us on track one of them is called the law of first mention that once uh, um, once something is uh, a word picture a metaphor or something is established in the scripture it kind of holds that throughout scripture you can't just let your metaphors bounce all over this this time it means this, that time it means that, this over here it means this. It gets really hard 
to interpret anything, you know. So, um, so we see things in the scripture that, that pop up over and over and over again. A lot of times it's numbers, like the number seven, the number 40 from, uh, from uh, fasting. We see these things kind of repeat. And, uh, and we assume that what was going on the first time that popped up has something to say about the second time it pops up. It's, it's the law of first mention. Once you establish what this means, it holds. And this is one of the passages where the law of first mention gets really complicated because the first time the serpent is mentioned is in the creation story, is in the fall. And the serpent's a bad guy. And the serpent kind of holds this metaphor throughout Scripture is the bad guy, and then we get this passage. And, and it gets really complicated. But on top of that, we have that God is the one sending the serpent. And this is a, this is a tricky concept here because we, we don't like discipline and we don't like to think about God in terms of discipline, in terms of... of, uh, of what he might do to bring us around. And so the idea that God would send these serpents to discipline the people is hard. And, if, and I would love to say I can give you a really clean, easy explanation for how that works and blah, blah. But all I can do is read the scripture to you because it bothers me too. And I absolutely would not have taught this if it wasn't in the lectionary. Because of passages like this, this is a tough one. And this is a tension that we just have to live with, that our God um, will do what he has to do to turn our hearts. He will. And, uh, and that can be tough. And so in this case, the discipline does work. We see the people's heart turn. Um, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Tell him I said hello. Okay, And the Lord said to the people, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the pole, at the bronze serpent, and live. So in the midst of this pain that the people are in, the midst of this kind of anguish of serpents just biting people and people dying, they cry out to God. And, and, and they go to Moses, and Moses prays for the people, and God's answer is this, uh, is this serpent on a pole. And what's tough about this one is notice what the people ask for. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from among us. Now pray what God does. He doesn't actually give them what they ask for. He doesn't take away the serpents at all. He says, make a, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and when you are bitten, you can look on the pole. And this is another tough one, because we would love it if our prayers were answered in a, you know, God, would you take this away from me? And what we usually get instead is, I will gladly strengthen you and be with you as you go through this. And you're like, that is not what I asked for. I asked for this to go away. I don't want this here anymore and what we get instead is I will I will find a way so that as you are going through this thing there is salvation that as you're going through this pain as you're going through this you know this serpent bite whatever that is that there will be a way 
and, and no, I'm not going to take the serpent away. I'm not going to pull the pain from you, but I will go through it with you. I will show you a way that you can go through this. You guys remember when we spent a lot of time last year talking about tension? Talking about <laughs> this, this verse is nothing but tension for me, like this whole passage. Um, so the people don't exactly get uh, what, they're, what they're asking for. And I think this kind of fits our, our wilderness talk that we've been going through. Because we've been talking about how important the promises of God are in the wilderness. That when you are, you know, when, when God's all over something, you know, it's, it's easy. That's the easy parts. It's when you hit the wilderness that you really cling to the things that God has promised you. And, and the serpent almost stands in the midst of this camp like a big promise. Like when you are bitten, and trust me, you will be bitten. You've got somewhere to look. You've got somewhere to turn. You've got a promise for healing. So, um, so we have this kind of essential weirdness of this passage that, number one, it's a serpent. And just hermeneutically, we don't know what to do with that because the serpent's symbolically supposed to be the bad guy. So that's, and I mean, the Jewish writers get real weird with it. So that didn't help me at all. Um, and then we got the fact that God sent the serpent and that bothers us. We don't really like to go there um, because that, uh, that's hard. And then they beg for an end to the serpent and instead they get um, this pole. And so, um, so this passage is altogether weird for us in the first place. But something bigger happens here that I do want to call out. Something we haven't seen kind of in our journey through the Old Testament yet. And that is that um, in the Noahic Covenant, there was nothing, the people didn't have a part. Like that was just God saying, I promise you I'm not going to do this again. There's nothing for them to do. This was just a promise God gave. And then Abraham comes along and there's, uh, Abraham kind of have his, has his first part and it's, a highly uncomfortable part, but he has a role. And that's to be circumcised. I have to be circumcised to be part of this covenant. And it becomes kind of the sign of that covenant for everyone after him. And then we get to the Mosaic covenant. And this one's even bigger because it's like, if you will obey all the commands that I give you, these things will happen. And so the people have a huge role in this one. And this time um, we see kind of this new element show up that would have probably seemed meaningless if not for some words that Jesus says later. But this one, we kind of see the beginning of, we could almost say faith as the currency of the kingdom. You can see for the first time where um, this, this, I guess, activity of all you have to do is look up and believe. All you have to do is, is choose to look at this thing and it has a healing effect. You see this kind of new um, element that's not really behavioral, but it's, uh, it's, uh, but it's powerful and it's effective. So you have this efficacious faith for the first time that we've seen so far. Now we do know that Abraham believed God and was called righteous. We do know that, that he had this right, that, that God had made him a promise and he chose to believe it. And God said that Abraham was righteous because of that belief. But this is this interesting, almost saving, this efficacious saving faith that if they will look at this thing, it'll literally save us their life. And so this kind of has almost a symbolic quality that becomes super important because Jesus calls on it. And, 
And without what Jesus said, we may not have seen this because it's such a bizarre passage. I don't know that we would have gathered its full effect if Jesus hadn't kind of called it into question in, in John 3. He said, and, Mo- and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So Jesus almost calls on this metaphor and says, and we saw this, we talked about this when we were talking about typology, how Jesus says, just as Noah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Like, nobody would have ever read the Noah story and gone, oh, clearly that's a type of, yeah, clearly that's a type. Did I say Noah? Okay, Jonah, sorry. Nice, thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, Nobody would have ever read the, the story of the prophet and the fish um, if, uh, yeah, I'll take the easy way out. No, nobody would have ever read that and said, oh, clearly this is a picture of the Son of Man when he comes. He's going to be buried for three days. It's only when Jesus looks back on it and calls back on it do we even know that that was actually an active metaphor, an active type in the Old Testament. This is kind of similar. Like, nobody would have looked at this thing and said, this is probably similar to the way the Messiah is going to work someday. You know, but when Jesus calls it out and he says, just as, just as, and that's an important statement there, just as, the serpent is lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Almost like there's going to be this thing, and when you look upon it, you are saved. There's going to be this, this lifting up that, that when you have a similar efficacious faith, you will be saved. And so, um, so we see this kind of, kind of creation or institution of, this, of faith as this currency that... Uh, that moves the kingdom. And, and everything in the Christian life is supposed to be by faith. It's supposed to be this way. And this gets real tricky because um, it's really hard to tell when it's by faith. So you can have somebody who, you have two people who live the identical life. You know, they, they wake up in the morning, they do all the same things, and then they go to bed at night. And, they, and, and one of those people can be doing all those things by faith, and another, and the other person is doing all those same things, but in an attempt to, to please and earn God, at the end of the day, feels like um, God owes me something, or surely I'm going to receive from God, or surely I'm going to uh, get to heaven because of the things I've done. And you could not look at those two lives and know the difference. There's no way we could look and say, well, clearly this man has faith and this man doesn't. One person can, because everything we do, we... We pray not because we think God owes us something if we do. We pray because we believe in a God who answers prayer. And we have this faith and, and we see Jesus praying. And we're like, I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus prayed. And so it's this faith act that we, because I believe, I do this thing. And then that can so subtly and quickly twist to, I, I, it's like a vending machine. I pray because God has to give me something. And if I pray, he said he, I, he has to answer. And, and suddenly it takes this shift where you're no longer like having your faith in God. It's like you're having your faith in prayer. And that's the crazy shift. Is, and, and we do it with anything. It can be giving where we give because we're like excited about giving and we want to advance the kingdom and we want to do great things. And then the second, it's like, I want a blessing, so I'm going to give like, and, and the second it becomes a thing, now you're, you're believing in giving. Your faith is in giving, not in the God whom you're giving to. And this can happen in anything in our life. And this is that's one of the things that I think is the most important 
uh, about this passage because what we see is this snake that they put up on a pole that saved. If you go forward about 500 years, there's a king um, named Hezekiah and he's leading this huge revival and part of revivals back then seemed to be going through the land and tearing down all of the idol worshiping sites of, uh, of the people who lived in the land before them. And Hezekiah is doing that. He's just kind of sweeping the land. And uh, let's go to the next one here. And it goes like this. And uh, he, that's Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places, those are those altars, um, and broke pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it and called it Nehushtan. So we see this thing that was intended to give life, intended to be like this way to believe in God's salvation, becoming the object they were actually worshiping. And this can happen in almost anything in the Christian life. I mean, this is kind of another uh, look at functional saviors. Those things that are good, that everything we do, uh, we, even reading our Bibles, we read our Bibles to, to know about God and to know about Jesus and to get close to Him and to, and to know Him. And the second you're doing that to try and please God, you've lost it. Suddenly, you're, you're worshiping a Nehushtan. The thing that was life-giving is suddenly an idol. And, it, and this is spooky. This is tough because, because a lot of these things are good things. Like this was a God, you got to remember this, that serpent was put up because God told Moses to put it up there. This was not a bad thing. This was not something, this was not an idol originally, but it became one. And this is what's really tough about these verses. It can be going to church. I mean, it can be, it can be voting. I think we are supposed, living in a democracy, we're supposed to vote. We're supposed to vote. A, a vote that is informed by Scripture and by our relationship with God. And we're supposed to vote accordingly. But that can quickly become worshiping the vote. It can quickly become worshiping the thing that was supposed to be life-giving. Everybody's starting to get uncomfortable. So, the things of faith. And let me give this example. Doug Squirman back there. I'm, I'm loving it. Um, this is one of the problems I have with, uh, and you guys know I, I talk about this quite a bit. One of the problems I have with with driving a hell theology is is, and you got to bear with me for a second. But there is no more selfish decision you could make than to worship Jesus to avoid hell. Because that's self-preservation. That's, I don't want to burn, so show me whatever I have to do to keep from burning and I will do it. That's, that's not Jesus himself. That's, I want to save me. Whatever I have to do to save me, work, tell me who to worship to save me, and I will. And, and that's, that's a self-preservation. That's taking this thing now to say, I'm inspired by the Jesus of the Bible. I'm inspired by someone who would love so much he would give his own life. I'm inspired by, uh, by this, this guy who, 
um, turned to tax collectors and prostitutes and, and said, I'm, I'm like a doctor sent to the sick, like, and crossed those barriers and went, like, that inspires me and I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to I spend eternity with that person. Whatever I have to do to spend eternity with Jesus, I'm in. Like, let me do that because this person is so captivating and so inspiring that I will do what I have to do to be with Jesus. Do you see how different that is? And it, and it seems subtle. It seems, you know, what's the difference? I'm believing in Jesus either way. <clears throat> but it doesn't feel that way to me. One feels like I'm protecting me. If my, if my concentration, if what drives me is escaping hell, I'm not motivated and driven by Jesus. I'm motivated and driven by me. I know that's not normal. We love hell in the evangelical church. We really do. Like, it's so useful. But the problem I have with it isn't that I don't believe it's real. It isn't that I don't believe it's biblical. It isn't that I... I just believe when, if that's what I use to get you toward Jesus, all I'm doing is getting you to protect yourself. That's not selling you Jesus. Does everybody feel the difference? Is, it, is that only to me? Is that, go ahead, Doug. Yeah. Right. Yep. And actually, I'm glad you said that. We're getting into that. Here, here's one of the. Um, trying to think if I can come up with a, a good word picture for this. Um, I almost have to make it ridiculous to get it. But if if uh, if I say, meet me at this restaurant at six, you know, and and we're going to, I'll be there at six. Meet me there. And you, you break your schedule, drive to that restaurant, and and to, and wait there. That's an act of faith. That's you. You believe what I said. You believed I said I was going to be there at six because I said I was going to be there at six. That's a very different thing. And like I said, I got to make this a little over exaggerated again. Than going to a restaurant and saying I'm here, you have to come here. Like it's a very different thing than expecting me to be there because you came. And believing I said I would be there, and so you went to meet me. That's almost like what it is. Like there's a difference between God saying, if you will honor your father and mother, you will live long in the earth. And saying, I believe you. I, I have faith that your word is true. I want to live long in the earth, so I'm going to honor my father and mother. That's very different than saying, um, I have honored my father and mother, you owe me long life. I mean, I know it's, it seems nuanced and, and subtle. There's a difference between saying, I am so madly in love with Jesus, I want to make him happy. I can't wait to please him. And saying, and that's why, that's why we don't like this, because I can't look at your life and tell which one you're doing. There's, I can never look at your life and say, that was an act of faith, or that was an act of, of, uh, of works, of you, of you trying to earn something from God. There's nothing I can, I can see to know the difference. So there's, there is no matter how holy someone looks, no matter how, um, I guess, perfect they seem in church, they could be growing farther and farther and farther away from Jesus because every day they're like, he owes me now. I've done everything the way he said to do it. I, like I've, I've lived exactly the way he said to live. So now he owes me something. He owes me this, these rewards. Rather than saying, I believe 
that the way you say I should live is the best way to live. Like, and I, I know sometimes I don't like doing those things because they, they're not what I feel, but I trust you. I believe, I have faith in you that the things you say are the best really are. And so even when they don't make sense to me and I'm like, I don't know why I would do this. It doesn't really add up. But he said it was the best way. And I believe him. So I'm going to do him. I got a little litmus test. This is how we respond to this. Um, well, first we have to recognize that Lent is a solitary time. And so um, none of us can sit here and go, man, I hope the guy next to me hears this. Like you go through Lent kind of alone. So the, the good thing about this one is you can't judge and, and ask how the guy next to you is doing in his faith walk because you can't see faith. Faith is faith is a is a inner motivation for how we do things. The second, I want to kind of run this litmus test past you, um, and just this, to me, this is if I had to find something in this passage to take home, it's this: when you screw up, when you really blow it, where do your eyes go? That's my question. When you really mess up, where do your eyes go? Do they go down? Like, man, I blew it. Man, I'm going to get it. Man, I've got to get my stuff together. Man, I've got to straighten up. Or do they go up? When you really blow it, you say, I'm so glad Jesus saved me on the cross. I'm so glad this is not up to me to earn. I'm so glad that his love is bigger than my messed ups. That's the way the serpent works. If when you get bitten, and you will get bitten... You look down at the bite, you die. It's over. I mean, if we're using the, the metaphor from the story, only when you look up do you live. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know if you're living by faith or if you're living by works, next time you mess up, follow your eyes. Do you beat yourself up? Do you immediately drop to this, ugh, and I blew it again, blah, 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 and just and fall into dejection and shame? Or do your eyes go up? And does it motivate a sense of worship? Like, I'm, I'm so glad he's bigger than me. I'm so glad Jesus saved me. I'm so glad he loves me. I'm so glad Jesus... I'm so glad... I'm, I'm so thankful for the cross. 